Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Hello, good humans. Welcome to an episode of this podcast in which we talk about independent music, whether it's punk, hardcore, emo, indie rock, metal, whatever it is. That is what we address. And we talk to the people who are creating it, making it up as they go, like all of us, documenting it, all of those things, because we care about this scene tremendously. I have what I would like to call a legendary human being within the scene, on the show today, and that is none other than Dan Yemen, who played in Lifetime, Kid Dynamite, is the vocalist for Paint It Black, and he also plays in a band called Open City. And a few key things to note, first of all, Open City, his band, is releasing a new record on October 6th called Hands in the Honey Jar. It's on Get Better Records, and uh, they have a few singles streaming up now. You should check them out because Open City is really, really, really good. Members of Bridge and Tunnel as well, and uh, it's just people who are very, very comfortable in playing music, and it sounds like it, and it shows, and it's awesome. And for those that have not been paying attention, Painted Black also announced a new record on Revelation, and that is coming out November 3rd. And uh, yeah, I was just, I was incredibly excited. Dan told me about that off mic when we weren't recording, and I was like, wow, new Painted Black. This is exciting. So Dan has a lot of stuff going on, which is great. And uh, before we dive into the discussion with him, Let's talk about how you can get in touch with the show. You can always email me at 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I love to receive feedback and just ideas, whatever it is that's on your mind, down to talk about it. I also want you, I plead with you to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts that helps out the show tremendously. I know you hear it 
all the time if you listen to the show on a week to week basis, but uh, not everybody does. And you, you know, for the one time that I don't mention it, it might hit a person or they might do it. So you, you get it. But rating and review there, you can leave a rating on the Spotify page in which you listen to this podcast. All of those things help out tremendously. And I greatly, greatly do appreciate that. Been able to uh, hit a few shows recently, which I am excited to discuss here. Uh, Just last night, I saw the Scowl Military Gun MS Paint Tour here in the Southern California area. It's, uh, man, it's exciting to see packed out shows and all bands firing on all cylinders. I'd never seen MS Paint before. Very enjoyable. Scowl, I've actually never seen in California. Or did, no, yeah, actually, I haven't. I've only seen them internationally. And it was really cool to see a, I would say, home t- state reaction, not hometown reaction. And uh, yeah, Military Gun is super, super fun. I always enjoy seeing them. So it was a great show. And it definitely felt like there was a a whole new batch of kids coming to the shows, which uh, is great. That's what you want in this beautiful scene of ours. I also went to see Teenage Wrist in Spiritual Cramp and Initiate play again, just about 10 minutes from my house. It was, oh, I love it when shows are close. It's nice and convenient. But I got to watch those bands play and uh, Spiritual Cramp. Man, I love that band. (laughs) It's just, it's been, it was probably about a year and a half since I saw them last. And uh, yeah, they're, they're cooking, man. So catch either of those tours if they come through your town because, uh, yeah, you just won't be disappointed. And for those of you that have been kind to reach out, have noticed a little raspiness in my voice. I got something going on. I don't know what it is, so I'm going to visit the doctor later on this month. So um, yeah, appreciate that. But uh, hopefully it's not too annoying. It just kind of feels like I got a little little scratch in my throat, so to speak. And not really necessarily sickness, just kind of like a hoarse throat. So anyways, weird stuff. But if you have an inclination of something going on in your body, go to the doctor. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people are just like, oh yeah, I'll just like put my head down and tough it out. That's, that's, that's not a good vibe. Trust me. So anyways, like I said, Dan Yemen is on the show. I respect him and his guitar playing greatly. He is an intense dude in a good way. Like he's very focused and I felt very listened to as I asked these questions. And there were many times where he paused for, you know, a good 10 seconds or so to kind of collect himself, think about a response. And I appreciate that. So, um, I leave those in because I don't want this to, you know, seem like it's, uh, you know, just editing out those, those pauses or whatever. To me, that makes the conversation, um, you know, just, it gives you the context for it. So anyways, here's Dan Yemen from open city, lifetime, paint it black, kid dynamite, all of those awesome things. So here he is. in their early 40s, I have felt like I've grown up in watching your bands. And uh, I mean, I definitely did not see Lifetime, unfortunately, in the early iteration. Definitely saw you guys once you played, you know, the reunion shows and everything like that. But it feels like we are ostensibly watching you grow up musically, which obviously we many of us have. Um, mm-hmm. 
and this may be playing little, you know, armchair psychologist in a way, but the, uh, you know, something that you probably are like, don't do that, Ray, because you're not a professional. Um, ah, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, yeah. you're, you're for I don't mind, I don't mind switching seats. I'm here for that. Yeah. So it seems like me, like the, the roles that you have filled in, you know, a lot of your bands, um, if not all is like, you've been for lack of a better term, like the, the, the dad in the band where it's been like, you know, maybe the most responsible person, maybe the person that's, you know, doing show booking or, you know, settling up at the end of the night. Um, again, that's just maybe on the outside looking in the impression that I get, uh, is that correct in any way, shape or form? Um, for better or for worse, it was the case um, for a long time, and it is not the case anymore, which is great. <laughs> Got it. Because I wouldn't wish that job on anyone. It's actually a really good psychological question because, like, how people end up driving the bus, metaphorically speaking, in a band, and and how isolating that is for that person within the band um, is actually like a really, to me, a really interesting, it, it's painful for me, to, but it's interesting. Right. Well, and that's the, I mean, you, the, the reason I, I bring that up is the idea that usually, I mean, especially in punk and hardcore bands, when obviously most of us are children and have no idea what we're doing, a lot of that, those tasks end up falling on the singer's lap for better or worse, just because it's like, oh yeah, they're the person out there kind of talking to everybody or whatever. But it, it seems like, you know, for a lot of the stuff that you've been involved in, you maybe either had that not mindset, but you had that air of being like, oh yes, like I can, I can kind of handle this, even though, you know, I don't necessarily know what I'm doing. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, mm. So that's the reason that that's why I found it interesting where it was like, it seemed like you were the guy that was, you know, kind of, pushing things forward, so to speak, from the, the business aspect of the band. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out the way that that was long and I know it was a really good question, but I'm trying to figure out actually which part of it is the question. No, it's, I, I, I tend to ramble on and I appreciate you it's trying to. It's all right. So do I, I just realized I was sitting there like on the edge of a cliff going, wait, what am I answering? No, no, for sure. Basically just say like, did you enjoy that? I mean, like you said, you did not necessarily like the fact that it fell in your laps, but, but did you enjoy certain aspects of the kind of business of the band as it were? Um, I did not enjoy it in lifetime at all. Got it. It, 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 other it, it, it isolated me um, okay. in a way that was, that was really painful and frustrating. Um, and, you know, when you, when we started, I was 22 and the other guys were 18 and 19. And that's at that age, that's a, a vast difference. Um, and so, you know, I just, I, I, um, I was actually just talking to somebody about this the other day because we were talking about uh, the very first tour we did, which was um, Lifetime and Resurrection, uh, 10 dudes in one cargo van. Um, and sometimes they're like, um, 
sort of structural forces that that create the dad role or the parent role in a band. So um, it's our first tour and we did not own a van yet. And at that time you could like budget rent a car was part of, had been folded into Sears and they would rent a cargo van, which basically just a, a normal size van with two front seats and the rest of it's empty. Um, and they would rent it by the, a flat rate by the week, unlimited mileage. Uh, but you had to have a credit card and I was the only one with a credit card. Okay. Which meant that I was the one worried about whether we were going to have enough money at the end of the month for me to pay that bill. Um, and also the one kind of making sure no, nobody like messed up the van. Yep. I, I tell you that nobody else cared about. <laughs> um, and that was like, so to be the one to, to be 22 and have to be like reeling people in and like, you know, I don't, I didn't want to be the one to, to tell people not to shoot off bottle rockets in the van. Right. Like that's not a fun job. Definitely not. <laughs> um, but that was my job by virtue of the fact that I, my name was on the rental agreement. Yeah, um, of course. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't, in that sense, it was not, it was not fun and it was lonely. Um, when I, uh, when I was sort of the band parent in with regard to sort of the vision of the band, later on like in kid dynamite um i enjoyed it but then i also learned some hard lessons which is that like uh controlling everything is not healthy sure um yeah so and now um i don't i don't uh i stay out of the role of band parent Right. Yeah. It's not, it's nice to be able to, uh, relinquish that control and understand that. I mean, especially too, I'm sure now where you are at there, the pressure to play in a band is only the pressure of your own desire as opposed to, Oh, we got to put out another record because we got a tour for the next 180 days or whatever. Right. Yeah. Which we'll exactly. get, which we'll get into a little bit later, but, um, you as a person, I know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, were you actually born and raised in New Jersey or where did you come uh, from? All of, a bunch of different places. Born in New York, raised in, let's see, upstate New York, near Schenectady, then Yonkers, then northern New Jersey. And then so I was, I guess I came of age in New Jersey, like eight to 18. I lived there. And then I went to school in Michigan. And then I went back to New Jersey for a couple of years and then moved to Philadelphia for school. And I've been there ever since, since 92. Got it. And so like when you were, you know, like going into whatever junior high and high school and everything like that and developing some of your, you know, what you would call an identity, um, what were, what was your, I guess, fam family structure like brothers and sisters in the house? Like what did uh, that look like? I have a younger brother, two years younger than me. Got it. And mom and dad in the house? Yes. So 
kind of a you know quote unquote typical upbringing in regards to the you know nuclear family as it were yeah definitely and your exposure i know to like punk and hardcore was definitely introduced via skateboarding or did it come in any other direction oh no i i you you would should not i was smart enough not to spend much time on the skateboard i'm not athletic at all i would have okay broken so many bones i could like get down the street on a skateboard but no um my introduction to punk and hardcore was through um i guess other probably other kids around me who had older siblings okay you know cool older sibling syndrome um and then college radio so specifically, um, the Rutgers radio station, WRSU, and a, a station that does not, as far as I can tell, exist anymore, WSIA, which is like, which was Staten Island College. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that was like, you know, I got turned on to like British punk through friends that were like, you know, into music who had older brothers who were into cool stuff. So Clash, Sex Pistols, probably Minor Threat, that route. And then the rest was just like, with that as a conduit, like college radio, and then like buying stuff that looked weird at the record store in our town. Mm -hmm. And what, like, as you started to, become interested in this and i'm guessing that your parents and or younger sibling did not have any exposure besides you to this stuff yeah. did they did they did they treat that as kind of like a what is dan getting into this is very bizarre or were they generally permissive for you to you know kind of explore the stuff you were exploring uh they i mean both i mean they were permissive um and not in the sense of like no rules, but like, you know, as long as I wasn't like hurting anybody or like screwing up badly in school, it wasn't, you know, they weren't really concerned with what I was getting into. Um, and they let, you know, from a pretty young age, they let me go into the city with friends, like on the train and stuff. So, um, it's free to explore on in that way. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, to them, in my house, there's only classical music. So, to, I mean, the Sex Pistols might as well have been Led Zeppelin. Like, they had no idea. Right. They had no idea it was any weirder than, like, Aerosmith. Sure. Right. And anything that was, you know, included guitar, I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, this is so so beyond the pale <laughs> yeah they just didn't understand it but they weren't i mean i also think they didn't think they didn't imagine they were supposed to understand it they're not they're not that they weren't those kind of people right right was there any uh i guess notion of you continuing on in regards to maybe your life path as far as a career to follow in your parents footsteps whatever they did no <laughs> It was not ne- never being like, all right, you're going to take up the, the family trade, whatever that may mean. No, they're just like, 
they wanted us to be led by our curiosity and just like find something that was like exciting for us. Which is cool because I think that, I mean, especially of that generation of the, you know, whatever the boomers, whatever you want to broadly describe that as sometimes it was that idea that, Oh man, they're just, they're just a little pre-boomer. My parents. Right. Yeah. So, uh, they were born in, my dad was born in 1933 and my mom in 1941. Got it. But it's, it's cool that you were given that experience to, you know, follow your passions. Cause sometimes that was not, you know, even part of the vernacular of what parents even knew what to do. It's like, well, yeah, you got to go to this and do this and that's what you do. Yeah. I think as long as we took education seriously, they stayed out of our way. Yeah. Um, I, I think there was a little bit of noise at, as we got a little older that like maybe my mom was anxious that some paths, uh, you know, would be difficult financially, but um, that also got squashed pretty quickly. Sure. Because <laughs> by the time I heard any of that, my brother and I were both in school and we were both, both in college. Are both like you do not. That is not a thing you can say. That's like not. I won't get into the specifics because I don't want to throw my mom under the bus. But just like you're, you're kidding me. Like you've you've encouraged us our whole lives to just like follow our curiosity, and like now when we're like 19 and 21, you 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 said this thing like about uh, you know we're just like no, that's not right. <laughs> That that's not how that's not that's not how this conversation goes. And and thanks, you know, my parents are pretty receptive. Like there, there wasn't a lot of pushback after that. I think. Yeah. I think my mom realized pretty quick that she was being hypocritical, basically. <laughs> Which I mean, you have the ability, like you said, you know, once you are ostensibly an adult and able to have that sort of pushback conversation, you know, in a. Mm -hmm you know, gentle and or forceful way to be like, oh yeah, like you can't do this. And then all of a sudden do that. And it's like, oh yeah, yeah well, man, yeah, a good point. Yeah. Like what are you changing course? This is like, and ultimately now I would probably like, then I was like 21. I was, then I was like, so punk. So I was like, you know, my response would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. Um, in, in retrospect, I would probably say like, this is really confusing in light of what you've told us our whole lives. <laughs> there may have been um, a more measured response at some point. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I think my parents in general were the way they raised us was in a lot of ways, a reaction to their awareness that they were like two under their parents umbrellas as young adults. Um, right. You know, their path, which was not uncommon at the time, given like sort of like where they're from and what, um, sort of what the economy was like. They're both raised in the Bronx. They both went to college in New York and lived at home um, and then didn't get out, kind of get out from under their parents until they both went to grad school in the Midwest, independent of each other. They didn't know each other at that point. And I think they kind of came to this realization in their like later 20s that like more independence earlier would have been good for them. Sure. Um, and they were able to apply that lesson 
yeah. whatever that and may mean towards you guys. Yeah. And their philosophy yeah. was basically like raise trustworthy kids and then trust them. Our friends at rockabilia.com want you to know that you can get 10% off of your entire order if you go to their site, rockabilia.com, and use the promo code 100 words or less. And what does that mean to you? Well, obviously, it means a discount. It's free money for you as you are placing all of these orders for, you know, maybe gifts for friends and family. Maybe you want a, you know, really sick, Grateful Dead shirt for yourself or whatever. Or maybe you are in the market for something for your dad or your mom or your brother or your sister, whatever it is. Rockabilia has all of the officially licensed stuff that you can shake a stick at. And they have like... I don't know, half a million items for you to browse around and check out. And it ships from the Midwest here in the United States of America, and it gets to you lickety split. And on top of it, they have amazing customer service if you run into any problems. And they got great people working for them. I love this company so much. And you've heard me talk about them like a million times. But now, today is the day in which you go to rockabilly.com, use the promo code 100 words or less, buy a bunch of stuff, and you will reap the benefits. So there we go. 100 words or less is the promo code, 10% off your order. Thank you very much, rockabilly.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire, and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Ray. It seems like you lived in, you know, a pretty intellectually curious uh, house. And like you said, education was definitely an important part of it. Um, did you, yeah. did, did school come easy to you or did you have to, you know, work relatively hard to, you know, get the grades that would allow you to go to shows in the city and stuff like that? It came easily to me up until uh, the years where like there was a lot more homework and then I had a lot of trouble sort of focusing. Sure. And were you drawn? And then I had to, and then I had to figure out how to like work hard. <laughs> sure. Sure. And were you drawn to the fact that like, I mean, it sounded like there was no other uh, path for you in regards to like, Oh yes, of course you're going to go to college. And I know that you, you know, you went to university of Michigan and you know, you pursued, um, the 
you know, academic route in ways that maybe other people didn't, especially when they started to get involved with punk and hardcore where it's like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to go on tour for the rest of my life. And it's Mm. like, well, that's not that practical. And we're, we're really privileged that they had the resources to send us to to college. So like, sure. I was appreciative of that. I also wasn't in band at when I started college. So like, going on tour was not really like, I couldn't even have imagined that when I was 18. Right. (laughs) Right. That wasn't even part of the radar. Sure. Yeah. And when you started to, you know, go to shows and experience that right in front of your face, did you immediately want to play in bands and kind of participate in that way? Or was that something you had to work your way up to? I mean, I was in bands like in my town, but like, it still seemed like the, you know, like the people on stage at CBGB seemed in another universe still, even though there was no, you know, even though there were two feet in front of me, um, the idea that I could do that was still pretty far away. Sure. That there was not a real easy thing well, not easy, but that there was a path for you to be able to exist on a stage like CPGBs at some point. Yeah. Like I was in a band in high school with friends and we played a mix of covers. And I think our originals probably sounded like the early, like the jam, like all mod cons era jam or something like that. At least okay. that's what we were going. That's what we were going for. But like the idea that we could play outside of like a school gymnasium in our town was not, something that occurred to me. Sure. And kind of putting the focus on, um, you know, lifetime in particular, watching the band's evolution sonically. Like, I mean, I I know once I got into you guys, it was definitely around the hello bastards time. And then, you know, being able to listen to the records that came after it. And then obviously the stuff that came before that, it was so interesting to be able to see how you guys took steps forward. And from what I can kind of gather, and you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong, like as you know, lifetime started, whatever the new age era versus the uh, Jade tree era, a a lot of people were, you know, understood you were a hardcore band, but at the same time, like you brought a lot of melodic sensibilities to it. Right. Were, were a lot of people kind of being like, what the hell are these guys doing? Like, I don't really understand it or was it kind of like, Okay, <laughs> that's what I thought. People had no idea what to make of us a lot of times, especially because Ari wanted to sing. Like my my vision, like of where I thought we could sort of land, or hoped we could land when we started out, was more like a like Turning Point or something like that. It was like really melodic, but the vocals were still screamed. But Ari was like, that was cool mute like in terms of instrumentation but he was like more like all or the descendants or something in terms of what he wanted to execute vocally so he didn't want us he didn't want to scream and so there was a lot by the time we started there was a you know a nice there was a nice precedent for melodic hardcore punk you know like dagnasty verbal assault gorilla biscuits turning point um, but like a hardcore band that sang, uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of, there was like punky punk stuff that had straight singing, like descendants and all. Um, but, but like a hardcore band where the singer just sang, 
there wasn't much of a precedent for that. Maybe reason to believe. Sure. Um, and, you know, bands that really weren't particularly well known outside their region. There was a band from Florida called Quit. I have their LP. And they were kind of like a one and done thing around for a couple of years. And they would play fast music with like sung vocals. But right. people, people really didn't uh, know where to place us. And people want categories, you know? Yep. And I, pr- like, I remember when, I remember when fucked up, put their first album out on J tree, listening to people like grown adults in their thirties, like expend a lot of energy debating whether it was a hardcore record or a street punk record, <laughs> you know? So like, and those are like men in their thirties. So like, imagine like people love categories, you know, and they don't know, they, they kind of, I think rely on categories to even like, sometimes make sense of what they're hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, so imagine what like a bunch of like 17 to 20 year olds in suburban New Jersey in 1990, you know, were trying to make sense of us. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing there, you know, once you did release more music and, you know, the hello bastards and, you know, Jersey Spence best dancers era, it seemed like people at least then were able to understand the direction that you were heading and kind of where you guys were coming from. I think they had to re-understand it because they started, you know, we did the seven inch and then the album and like people were starting to sort of have a, a way to think about what we were doing. And then we kind of pivoted. Um, which to me is just a natural progression. I mean, we were, we were trying to be, we we're all over the place and we didn't know what we wanted to be. You know, I was like influenced by like turning point, verbal assault, dynasty, all, but also like burn and stuff like that. And like everybody was influenced by quicksand in New Jersey in 1991. Um, sure. So our influences were all over the place. And I think it was when we sort of like got comfortable with each other and each other's abilities and we're able to sort of be like oh you know what the fundamentals like seven seconds of minor threat are like all we really need as like influence right <laughs> and, um, so it's kind of like a more like a hard reset like oh yeah like we, we're just like like the, the the classics you know like we can we know our limitations and we just kind of reset and we're trying to grounded ourselves back in the classics. Sure. Instead of trying to figure out this amalgam of sort of groundbreaking melodic hardcore bands that we couldn't decide which one was a better thing to a better path to follow all sounded a little bit different. We just were like, right. The crew. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that works. That's what we but like then as well. Filter, you know, like, but then the stuff we already knew how to do kind of filtered through that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll I'll hit on Lifetime again a little bit later, but um, putting the focus on uh, Kid Dynamite now, the it seemed from my impression, and I mean, I got to see you guys probably at least you know six or seven times throughout the 
the times that you guys were hitting the road and touring a lot, it seems like that was definitely the most, um, you know, focused, I guess, and, you know, going for it, uh, that you had ever been with a band as far as, you know, the touring aspect and putting out records and, you know, being part mm-hmm. of the music industry as it were, um, was, did you feel, I'm, I'm guessing in some sense there was, you know, pressure once the band had started and started to get momentum. Uh, was that difficult for you to kind of navigate that type of pressure? And that's ultimately what led to, you know, you guys pulling the plug with it. Or was that, you know, other factors that obviously led to the, you know, the band not being able to continue on? I mean, for me, the pressure was internal. Okay. I felt like, Lifetime was like reaching, you know, there's like a certain velocity that an airplane taking off has to reach before the lift kind of takes hold of the wing. Mm -hmm. And I felt like Lifetime was just getting to that point. Like, and then the rug was pulled out from under us. Well, from my experience was the rug was pulled out from under me. And so I was like, wait, no. Yeah. I'm going to do is, even though I'm starting over, I'm going to, to the greatest extent possible, pick up where I left off. Right. So there's a lot of self-imposed pressure, like very focused on like what the band was going to sound like, what it wasn't going to sound like and getting, you know, like making a record and getting on the road. Right. And it, it did seem, I mean, just from the outside too, it, it did seem that way where you were, it, obviously there's, you know, the straight line that you can draw between, you know, Lifetime and Kid Dynamite, you know, sonically, like, of course, different bands, but just the intentionality that you seem to approach that band with where it's like, okay, I've learned a lot from being in Lifetime and being able to, you know, do this, but then now Kid Dynamite is a more refined version of it from just, you know, being able to get out there. Yeah. And I think ultimately you're talking about pressure. I think ultimately we didn't pull the plug. I think Jason pulled the plug and I think Dave and I put too much pressure on him. Mm-hmm. Dave and I were full on, like, we're going to do this, like tour as much as possible. Um, and I think we put too much pressure on Jason to live that. Right. You know, we we're naive, you know, we thought, I think because that was what we laid out to anybody that was interested in trying out for vocals, we were like, this is what it's going to be. This is what we're going to do. And I think we're naive and thinking like, okay, well, that's, that's like a, so anyone who joins, that's what they're signing on for. And that's what they want. That's what they want to do. Um, But, you know, it's one thing to talk about being on the road six months a year. It's another thing to be on the road six months a year. Right. Um, In practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's not for everybody. It's like, it's emotionally and physically difficult. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, hitting on painted black, uh, just because I think, I mean, that was obviously a de- departure for you being able to, you know, put down the guitar and obviously pick up the microphone. Um, it, it seemed to me that that was, that band existed in kind of a, perfect stasis where you know you started to personally obviously develop a family and like uh, you know develop your your practice and you know be more settled and not being on the road for as much as you have been um 
was it uh you know did you feel like i guess more balance with that band uh or was it you know just as i guess chaotic because you were having to balance all these other things that you were doing in your life more balanced because i think the we were not pushing ourselves so it wasn't it wasn't designed to be something that was like all in 24 7 mm-hmm. which i'm sure was really liberating because then you could at least um you know be focused on like a, on a more project by project basis where it's like hey here's I want to put out an EP. I want to put out a full length. Like those were the things that you were marking the band as opposed to we have this tour coming up in four months and that's what we're preparing for. Yeah. It was, it was about, I mean, it was about making music. Um, not yeah. about like, not about touring really. Sure. And did, I guess did singing, I know you obviously did it in Lifetime as well, did, and this is sort of a hacky, cliched question, but just the the ability to transition into being comfortable in front of people with a microphone and kind of having that, you know, lead vocalist energy, as it were. Um, was that something that you felt like you had to kind of either learn or relearn as you did that with Painted Black? Yeah, I think it's really different with the microphone than with the guitar. You're a lot more exposed. Right. Um, but it's also, you know, I think more, actually more physically taxing. Definitely. Yeah. You have uh, to, ju- I mean, <laughs> just that idea of, especially when you're, you know, playing in a punk or hardcore band and these sing-alongs come in and obviously people are jumping on your back and like y- even removing that, it's still, you know, you're putting yourself out there in ways that you're literally exposed. Yeah, screaming for half an hour, like especially at that pace, like sort of the the way I think of like hardcore vocals should be is like it's rapid fire. It's like like uh, delivery is like Ian McKay, Kevin Seconds, HR, and then you know, so it's a lot of syllables, not a lot of space, right. And, didn't um, have to, didn't have time to breathe necessarily. <laughs> yeah, and like I had a good, I I knew how to scream, but like I didn't know how to scream that fast for that long. Let us talk about our friends at EvilGreed.net. They are an amazing web store solutions provider for record labels and bands. But the thing is, is you, as the consumer, can order from them. Obviously, you understand how websites work. But what makes Evil Greed so cool is they act like a record label, where they have a very specific focus on the types of bands and labels that they are working with. But before I tell you more about them, you have to use this promo code. So go to evilgreed.net, use the promo code 100 words, it gets you 10% off of your entire order. And let me just list some of their best sellers, their recent best sellers to give you an idea of the type of stuff that we're talking about. How about a Terror Underdogs t-shirt? Or how about a Vow Feminism in Action t-shirt? How about the reissue of the Deaf Heaven Sunbather 10th anniversary? Oh, oh my gosh. Or how about Isis, the band, the Mosquito Control, and Red Sea Double LP? Oh my gosh. They have such cool stuff. Tsunami, Incendiary, Snuffed Out, Mutoid Man. You get it. They basically travel in all of the cool, heavy stuff that you most likely are into if you are listening to this show. And that is obviously why. 
they enjoy working with this podcast and I enjoy working with them. It's a mutually beneficial relationship. They are based in Berlin, Germany, but do not let that scare you. You can get your order in and it ships at a very economical rate. And on top of it, it gets to you relatively quickly. I mean, we're not talking like, you know, Amazon Prime overnight or anything like that, but it gets to you. Honestly, I ordered from them before. Took took about a week to a week and a half to get to me, which is amazing. So evilgreed.net, 100 words is a promo code. Please use that and enjoy buying all of the vinyl and t-shirts and stuff that you want. So there you go. Evilgreed.net, we love you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. It also struck me too with just the, um, you know, your output musically over the years and, you know, people obviously kind of know what they're getting into when, you know, Dan starts a new project or a new band or what have you, but you definitely have removed so much, if not all of like the ego that sometimes gets attached to bands and band members where it's just like, oh yeah, you know. Dan Yeeman, larger than life, like this, you know, Philly hardcore legend or whatever. And you have done everything you can personally to probably, you know, shed any of that uh, and have people place those expectations on you. Um, was that something that just obviously came pretty naturally for you to be like, listen, like, I'm, I'm not that cool. Like, just cause I play in a band, like that doesn't mean anything. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky and, and persistent. That's like the only thing I am. Okay. Um, I'm not like, I'm, I, I mean, I think, I think I'm a good songwriter, but like, I don't, I'm not a good guitar player. Um, I'm not a, uh, overall a great front man. I'm just like a kid who is, didn't want to stop. Sure. Um, like, I'm going to stick around. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I just want to keep making music and like, um, Also, I think punk hierarchy is bullshit. Yeah. Like the idea that there's people you can't approach is obnoxious. Sure. Like a few times in my life, we opened for people, opened for bands that didn't get off their tour bus until it was time to play. And right. I just, it's, that's that nonsense makes such a bad taste in my mouth. Sure. Especially because it's like, in direct opposition to everything that we've all collectively experienced as far as what this scene was, you know, built on just the idea of, 
yeah, there's a stage, but like there's no separation between a band and an audience. Like everybody is in it. We just happen yeah. to have instruments in our hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why I still hate playing with barricades, no matter how much. At some point, I like I've done. We do it occasionally, but at some point, I started. We started like, and, and I don't mean just like all the bands um, that. I, at some point, it became more of like a. You know, like I'd rather make less money and play in a smaller stage without a barricade right. than like get paid a lot of money to play a festival. It's like flattering to be asked. And I know it's a position of privilege to turn that stuff down, but like there's nothing more painful for me than playing with a barricade. Right. I mean, I mean, there are more painful things in my life, but like nothing more painful for me in the world of like create in my creative world. Yeah, of course. And on that somewhat related topic, the idea that, I mean, you've spoken about and articulated in past interviews, how you've always been really thankful that you've never had to rely on your music and the bands you've played in to, you know, make a living uh, and I know that that's something that, you know, some people like, they like that idea, but then they get caught up in, you know, the music industry as it were, and then kind yeah. of, you know, step on that treadmill. Um, had, when did you, I guess, kind of like arrive at that conclusion? Was that something that was like, even, you know, during the days of Kid Dynamite, where you guys were ostensibly, you know, making a living off of music, which, you know, just meant paying the rent from the guarantees. Yeah. Uh, when did you feel like you kind of, I guess, settled in that spot? Um, I guess like probably, you know, somewhere between the end of Kid Dynamite and the beginning of Paint of Black. Okay. It was just real, I guess, like you arrived there logically just based off of your previous experience and understanding like, Oh, I can't, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I want to keep showing up, but I don't want to keep showing up in this way. Yeah. And, and, you know, like there's not that many people that can make that work also without destroying their like home life. Sure. Which it always seemed to me too, that there was like, that was something that was clearly important to you, not only, developing your career, but then, you know, having a family and everything like that. And I know some people, especially when you're talking about, you know, people in their late teens, early twenties, there's just like, Oh, like the pinnacle of success is, you know, just touring all the time and like not, not having any other focus in your life. It's like, why, why are you doing this? Did, um, did people, I guess, treat you quizzically because of the fact that you wanted to have these other pursuits outside of, you know, just playing in a band, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. It was a factor like, um, the factor in lifetime, definitely, even though like I was on that path the whole time. I mean, when, when we started the band, I was, I was, I was out of college and studying for the GREs, like the graduate school, like entrance exams. Um, so that was like always the thing I was pursuing. 
um, alongside everything else. And, you know, but sometimes somehow people would still be surprised that I was like, oh, I can't, can't do this because I've got school obligations or whatever. Right. They're like, what do you mean, Dan? <laughs> like, it's amazing that I, I thought when I started grad school, it was, it, it was like the, the, Lifetime only had like a uh, seven inch and the first, the background LP out. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to go to grad school. I'll have, I'll have to stop playing in a band because, you know, I won't have time. And then, you know, it pretty quickly became apparent that that wasn't going to happen. Right. And that actually like the busier I was, the more productive I was. Right. That That's interesting because that's what I was going to say is the idea that like when you have the space to do both, like, you know, be creative, play in a band, but then also the space to be able to pursue, you know, a career psychology, like obviously all of those things that you were doing in your life, they probably fed one another in many respects. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. And I've also admired the fact that, you know, you've clearly been open about like your life in general, as far as like, Oh yes. You know, like I am a, you know, psych, do you, psychologist or psychiatrist? I always psychologist. 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 Okay. You've, you've been open about that and bringing, you know, aspects of that to your lyrics and whether it was in paint of black or anything else that you were doing from a musical perspective. Um, many, and I don't know if this is like an ego thing, but a lot of people in punk and hardcore don't necessarily like, like to talk about their professional life, whether it's because they're embarrassed because they're working for, you know, the man or whatever, mm-hmm. or if it's some other reason, um, have you encountered that or do you recognize that in, you know, kind of other people or is that just, you know, me reading too much into things? <laughs> I don't know. I don't really think about much about how other people are doing it or not doing it, to be honest with you. Um, sure. I think that um, it's always just made sense to me to, to be, you know, within reason open about open about who I am. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I know it's like a total cliched saying, but just the idea of you know, bring your whole self to work, where it's like oh yes, like, you know, clearly you're not going to cover up who you are and the fact that you, you know, play in bands to your patients and then vice versa, where the fact that you would speak about, you know, elements of your life outside of you just obviously singing in a band. Yeah. I don't know how to talk around that. And also like how boring would this interview be if I just talked about like (laughs) the band? Totally. Totally. And, and especially too, and I'm sure you recognize this with your peers where when, if you don't really have anything going on in your own personal life to be able to creatively inspire you, like you're just going to end up, you know, writing either really cliched music or cliched lyrics or whatever, because you're not actually pulling inspiration from anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, it makes sense to pull inspiration from everything. Yeah. Oh, totally. I agree. The uh, stuff, the stuff that you're doing with uh, Open City, seems to exist very much in the same space as where you know Paint of Black is, where 
you are just excited to play with these people and everybody is, you know, clearly an adult and has a lot of experience playing in other bands and everything like that. I, I like the idea that you, you know, get together with the band to rehearse and practice, you know, once a week in the same way that a person would be like, all right, I got to play golf once a week or, you know, go to the bar on Friday night to like decompress. Um, is, you know, is that basically just a function of like your own mental well-being where it's like, yeah, I got to have practice once a week because that, that helps. <sighs> Let me think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think it's, I mean, I think when I'm not doing music regularly, it is, Like it's, I feel this sadness. Um, mm-hmm. And also the other thing is that, um, you know, when I'm in a, like a really fertile creative period and I'm just writing a lot, like I might be playing my instrument a lot, but when I'm not writing, I can, like if I am not accountable to people to show up at practice, I, I might not pick up my instrument for two months like sitting on a stand right i'm looking at it right now in a corner of my living room um and i you know i get home from work i have dinner with my family i clean the kitchen um we walk the dog i read to my kids and then it's like time to go to sleep so uh if i don't have to be on point for something i might not play for a while i might really and at this point, like my whatever skills I have can atrophy if I don't play regularly. Sure. sure. The funny thing is, like you're tell- you're talking about what you know of Open City from whenever I talked about it last, but subsequent to th- that, um, Open City is no longer a band that practices every week because Andy lives in California now. Right. So it was originally like. Je- painted black and so jared moved to california um the same year my uh daughter was born and so it, you know painted black became a much more sporadic undertaking and uh i was talking to andy I was like we need to do a band where everyone's here and we practice like a real band every week right and um and that was like the orig- that was the premise before we even like really talked about what it would sound like. Um, we just like wanted to be in a working band. Sure. Um, but you know, and then now, and then, change. right. And then, yeah. And then now you have to, uh, you know, be across the country and be like, all right, yeah. well now, obviously that means you have to start another band, Dan. I'm just kidding. Well, I, I, I did join another band, uh, during the pandemic. Because That's most, uh, because I miss playing every. I mean, they're my friends. And I like their music, but I miss playing every week. Sure, sure. And I kind of was scared about of what would happen to me as a musician if I wasn't playing every week. Yeah, no, I, the, the awareness of that definitely makes sense. Just from the, like you said, the atrophying of the skill, and be like, yeah. dude, I haven't picked up my guitar in six months, and like, I can't even, I can't even play any of this stuff. Yeah. The um, it, it seems also too that uh, with your involvement in you know 
the punk and hardcore scene and putting out records. It, it seems like now, because you are, I mean, obviously by all stretches of the definition, like you should be, you know, aging out of this, like you shouldn't be, you know, caring about this at all and playing in bands. Like that's, you know, a, a, a young person's game or whatever. <laughs> but um, it seems like, you know, with your choice to you know, work with, like, get better records and still be exposing yourself to, you know, people under the age of 30 or whatever, Mm-hmm. Is that is that a um I guess a a function of why you you know are putting yourself out there and like putting out a record and get better or whatever like you could have obviously just done you know something else but is that kind of a, a goal of Open City or any of your other f- future music projects to you know be able to get in front of younger people? Uh, no, I think it's uh, I think it's inevitable if you're making this kind of music. Sure. Um, I mean, I don't think about age much when I think about this thing. I just think about people that are like passionate about passionate about music and ideas and about stuff that is not doesn't you know fit easily into mainstream categories and and doesn't rely on like mainstream business structures. And all the mess that comes with that in order to sort of thrive. Right. The um, last two things I want to hit on was the um, idea that I I find the Lifetime self-titled LP was so interesting because it, you know, I mean, talk about a, a a random thing that I think many people didn't anticipate was like new music from Lifetime as you started to play again. And then especially the, you know, Fall Out Boy, Fueled by Ramen connection and all that sort of stuff. And it seemed like there was essentially like almost the biggest platform that any of your bands had with that particular connection was the process of putting that music together and putting that record together, you know, any different? Um, not like you were like, all right, we're going to write the hits, you know, <laughs> here's some singles or whatever. But, you know, did you approach it differently just based off of, you know, age and circumstance? Or was it kind of basically like all the other times that you had, uh, you know, pen stuff with Lifetime? I mean, it was only approached differently because our life circumstances were different. In fact, we were really deliberate about trying to make it under as similar circumstances as possible as we made the record before it 10 years earlier. So even though none of us lived in New Brunswick anymore, we wrote it there. Um, and, and, you know, all kind of commuted different stupid distances to meet there. Um, and we recorded it in the same studio with the same person as we did all our other records. Sure. Um, and we didn't want it to sound like a departure. We just wanted to sound like the next thing after the last thing. Right. The logical extension. Yeah, and I think the only thing that was different was um, because we had all started to have families, and so we were we had less time. And I think that 
some of the the only thing that the only thing that was maybe missing was that I think we wrote some of our best stuff in the mid and late nineties. Dave and Ari lived together in an apartment with a bunch of bunch of our friends and then later on in a in a house where there were a lot of shows and stuff going on. And so they we would like do stuff at practice and they would keep working on it at home. And some real magical stuff happened as a result of that. Um, and we couldn't approximate that. Right. The way our lives were in 2007. Right. The, fi- the fine tuning couldn't happen after the fact. So yeah, that yeah. makes sense. But we were a lot, you know, we were a lot better at being in lifetime 10 years sure. later. So like, Right. After having had a lot of time not being like that and doing other stuff. Um, so like the time we had together was extremely productive and fertile. Right. Yeah. You guys, as, as they say, you guys knew the assignment and everybody was showing up, you know, ready to, uh, to get things done, so to speak. Yeah. But it was a really, I think it was a great decision to do, to have it be geographically like, Yeah, absolutely. True to true to the original sort of the original process, I guess. Yeah, sure. Um, the last thing I want to hit is the fact that I mean, you know, your your kids are obviously of an age where they have most likely interacted with your music and or um, you know have opinions about it. Uh, you know, do they <laughs> do they feel uh, like this is a, I mean, obviously you're just dad and they don't necessarily, um, you know, think one way or another per se, but how do they, you know, interact with your music? They think it's like, Oh, that's funny. Dad's in a band and dad does these things. Um, how does that kind of interact with your kids? They think it's cool. Nice. But it's like, you know, it's always been a part of the landscape. So, um, it's not like, I don't know if it's a big deal for them. Right. They, um, but you know, my kids are into music, so they're not really into yelly music as they would call it, but they like, <laughs> sure. Appreciate my older, my older child is a musician also. And, and she very much appreciates like on a musical level. Sure. Sure. Have they, uh, have they seen you play? <laughs> They have, but not much. Um, sure. They have seen me play. Hopefully more now that they can stay up a little later. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, like, I think when we do record release shows for this, this stuff coming out in the fall, um, I want to make sure they're there. Oh boy, that was Mr. Dan Yemen. Thank you very much to Alex at Get Better Records for hooking this interview up and uh, check out all of his new music that he has coming out, New Paint of Black, New Open City. It's really great stuff. So um, if you are in the New England area and you happen to be going to the New England Metal and Hardcore Festival, I'll be there this weekend. So, uh, you know, say what's up. I would always like to, uh, you know, meet people who are listening to this show. I'm recording some podcasts out there, which I am very excited about, and it will be a fun time because I finally get to visit my 
very good friends, record store, Joey Cahill, a, a honorary guest of the show, his store called Want to Hear It Records, and I'm incredibly excited about that. And um, yeah, it's always fun. But next week, oh man, I am celebrating the 11th year of this show existing, which is absolutely incredible to say, and it feels even weirder to hear my words echo back to me. <laughs> But I have a, a banger of an episode. I have Nick Hexum from 311. And you, I know, I know what you're thinking. You're like, wait, what does this dude have to do with like punk or hardcore? Let me just tell you this. 311's first show was with Fugazi. Nick and the 311 people definitely know what is up with DIY. They, uh, they really did it. You know, they, even though musically they might not sound anything like the bands that, uh, you know, we were kind of raised on, so to speak, but, um, yeah, they, by all stretch of the imagination, they are a punk band as far as I'm concerned. So anyways, that's what we got next week. 11th anniversary, Nick Hexum from 311. So here we go. And until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.